Warning, this show is about true crime, and its contents may not be appropriate for children. This is the Crimecasters Network with Alicia Sophias and Ronnie Dahl. Two rogue reporters breaking newsroom rules to take you behind the crime scene tape. The case we have for you today, Crimecasters, isn't a who did it, but a why. Why would a vibrant, beautiful mother shoot and kill her entire family, even the family dog? then turn the gun on herself. Alicia, this is a question I've been trying to unravel because, as you know, this happened in my small town, just a few blocks from where I live. I pass the house every single day, Mm. including today. Jeez. And every time I wonder what happened, if only those walls could talk, would they tell a story of a happy family with a mom who suffered from depression and just snapped? Or a tale of a mother who was so scarred after being sexually abused by her own father, then shunned by her church community because she wouldn't be silent. (sighs) Let's go back to February 16th, 2018. A cold chill hangs in the air. Snow is on the ground. The sky is overcast. It's a Friday in Kego Harbor, Michigan. Residents are making weekend plans, trying to decide between lunch at Mary Donnelly's, happy hour at the Brujas, or dinner at the Lodge. Choices are limited in the small town of about 3,000 residents. But Ronnie, the first time I saw your town, I fell in love. It looks like a Hallmark movie. It is cute. At the Kegel Harbor Police Station, the day starts like most others. Very quiet. Then a call comes in for a welfare check. It's just after 8 o'clock in the morning. On the other end of the phone is Al Rickmears. He's with his friend Andy Netchi. They are at Lauren Stewart's house. She's Andy's cousin. See, Andy had received a troubling text message, so... She and Al went to the house to check on the family. I would do that. I would grab a friend or someone I knew, right? So when they get to the house, cars are in the driveway, but nobody is answering the door. So that's when they call 911. And the dispatch operator asks, well, what did the text message say? And so, Alicia, you know, I put in a FOIA for the reports and I got the 911 call. I was able to transcribe it. I'm going to have you read it. Okay, so this is a message from Lauren to Andy, right? Yes. Okay. It says, I feel I owe you why. I hate to tell you I failed my test to God to submit to him. I stumbled on the free love from God. I wanted his love, but not if I had to go on completely to him. I made a selfish heart by doing it for me instead of God. I hardened my heart and lied to myself that the love from God isn't real. I'm just going to react real quick. This is scary. Mm -hmm. I am ashamed I have become evil. I, oh my goodness. I took my husband and my kids with me so they don't have to feel my selfish act. They will sleep until Christ resurrect them. I truly hope you do better where I have failed. Uh, I mean, I have chills. I can't talk. Uh, to get so, that message. Because you had never No, I haven't. Seen I have not seen that message before. So Lauren actually sent that message February 15th at 5.07 p.m. When Andy sees it, she texts back, Lauren, you're scaring me. What are you saying? Right. She gets no response. So she sends another text. Don't do it, Lauren. 
Still no reply from Lauren. At 1.14 early Friday morning, Andy texts Lauren yet again saying, Do you think that this was funny to do to me, Lauren? Again, she got no response. Wait a minute. The first text was on the 15th. That's Thursday night. They didn't go in. They didn't check on them after getting those messages until 8 in the morning on Friday? Okay, that seems... I mean, I that text message, if, honestly, you can't say what you would do, but if I got that text message, if you send me that, I'm in a car. So I have reached out to Andy and Al. I haven't heard back. But according to a timeline that has been laid out by the detective on the case, Lauren's family was already dead by the time she sent the troubling text message. So Andy wouldn't have been able to help them. Oh, my goodness. I'm sure she probably struggles with that. Absolutely. Uh, but still, the words are so chilling and so disturbing. And I know everyone is wondering why, but before we get to that, since we mentioned the timeline, let's start there. But know the details are very difficult to hear, so this is a warning. Going back to the day of the deadly discovery, Kego Harbor police arrive at the small quaint bungalow on Cass Lake Road just after 8 in the morning. The doors are unlocked. Officers announce their arrival, but it's really quiet. At first, nothing appears to be out of order. The lights are off. A jacket is draped over the couch. Car keys are laying on the stand next to the front door. Then just past the kitchen in the bathroom, an officer spots the family dog, Einstein, bloody, left for dead in the bathtub. This hit me, Ronnie. So you could imagine this is Kego Harbor, Michigan. We don't have murders no. in our small community. We don't have violent crimes. So officers are on high alert. They call for backup and they make their way to the upper level. There they find one body and then two. 27-year-old Stephen and 24-year-old Bethany. At this point, the officers are wondering if the shooter is still in the house. With their hearts racing, they clear the closets and they check under the beds, each move not knowing if they're going to come face-to-face -face with a cold-blooded killer. Then they head back downstairs to check the rest of the house. And off the kitchen, they see a stairway leading to the lower level. As they descend, officers spot another body, Lauren, in a corner. Then Daniel, lying in front of the couch. His right hand is still in his pocket. This is so hard for me because this is my neighborhood. Yeah. An entire family is dead. It's determined Bethany was killed first. She was found dead in her bed and was most likely sleeping at the time when her mom put a pillow over her head and shot her once in the head. <sighs> I, I can't help but sigh after every sentence. With her daughter dead upstairs, Lauren waited for Daniel to come home. He heads downstairs. The family entertainment room is there. He gets comfortable on the couch when his wife puts a pillow to his head and shoots him. Lauren then sends a text to her husband's boss and tells him Dan had an accident and died. This is so strange. She says she can't talk now, but someone will inform him later on the details at the hospital. Stephen, the son, had recently moved out of the family's Kego Harbor home and had an apartment nearby. So on Valentine's Day, Lauren sent him a text telling him to come over the next day at noon. 
So Stephen stops by the house on that Thursday, not knowing his dad and sister were lying dead just feet away. Detectives theorized that Lauren wrapped herself in a comforter, pretending to be cold, but it was really just to hide the gun. She then lured Stephen upstairs to his old bedroom, possibly to check something on the computer. And when he sat down, she shot him twice in the head. Lauren's deadly rampage wasn't over. Between 9 and 10 that night, a neighbor thought she heard car doors slamming. Police determined the sound wasn't car doors, but gunshots. Lauren turned the Glock gun on the beloved family pet, Einstein, shooting the family dog several times before ending the nightmare with one last bullet to her own head. The investigators began the daunting task of trying to figure out why. Why did Lauren Stewart, a loving wife, doting mother, who was also very health conscious and a part-time model, kill herself and those she loved the most? Surprisingly, it was Lauren herself who gave them the answers, or at least some of the answers. She did leave a suicide note with haunting last words saying, I killed my family because I knew my death would stumble them. At least now they will not suffer and will be resurrected to life forever in peace. She actually left two suicide notes, one for the investigators and one for the medical examiner. She had really planned it. She did. And we'll put those pictures up. Um, on our website. So investigators were able to determine that Lauren had been planning the murder-suicide long before. She researched how-to videos on YouTube and even left recorded messages saying her husband and family had nothing to do with her decision, but blames being broken. She just couldn't heal from the mental scars of being sexually abused by her father. And that is the bombshell in this case. We've heard about incestuous situations before with some of the cases we covered. This is one that you just can't wrap your head around, Ronnie. So Lauren claims that her dad, David Couch, sexually abused her from the ages of about 6 to 14. This is all in the police report. Her late mom and sisters, however, never believed the allegations. And her father outwardly denies the claims. Those who knew Lauren and Dan say both suffered from some level of depression, maybe in part because they were raised as Jehovah Witnesses. And as they got older, they questioned their faith. They were deemed apostasy for speaking out against church practices, which led to them being shunned. To many of their family members and church friends, the Stewart family was already dead to them long before Lauren pulled the trigger. Now, I wanted to try to figure out and understand the Stewarts more. So I have reached out to so many people. Nobody and either one of their families got back with me, but I was able to reach Joyce Taylor. She was a friend of the Stewart family. She's also a former Jehovah Witness. And I also spoke with Kim Brooks. She runs a website and YouTube channel with her husband, called Watchtower Exposed. They are longtime activists dedicated to exposing what they believe to be a religion with dangerous doctrines. Listen to what the two of them had to say. 
You're listening to Crimecasters Network. With us now on the Crimecasters Network is Joyce Taylor. Joyce, thank you for being with us. Thank you. You were friends with Lauren Stewart. How did you guys meet? Actually, my husband and I knew her husband, Danny, since both of us were tweens, you know, 10 and 11 years old. My husband was sort of like a big brother to Danny and in the Jehovah's Witness religion. And Lauren and I met by happenstance. She had just recently left the Witnesses, and I had been out since 86. There was a ballet studio close to where Lauren lives, and I was frequenting it, and she happened to be attending. I didn't know who she was. We had lost track of Danny, and she, after one of the sessions, she said, well, I'm not going to go to the something about the Silver Dome. Yeah, it kind of opened the door for us. And I asked her what her last name was. And she said, Stuart, that's when I put two and two together. And I said, is your husband named Danny? And she says, yeah. And of course, we were putting everything together and come to find out we really did know each other a lot more than we realized. That started a nice relationship. It's almost like you were met to come into her life. It does. It really does. We clicked it off right away. And it was like a big reunion to see Danny again, especially for my husband. So much attention has been on Lauren, but we don't really know a lot about Dan or the kids. I can sum him up in one word, genius. And he had no former training, never went to college. I don't even know if he finished high school. I don't think he did. But here he was working at U of M in their medical facility, developing programs that would detect heart attacks months before they would even happen. He was a very integral part of their program there at U of M. And Stephen took a lot after his dad. He was very shy and spoke only when spoken to pretty much. And in Bethany, she was an artist. She could draw. She could draw anything and make it look like a photograph. She was also very, very quiet. And spoke pretty much only spoke when spoken to, which is pretty much how Jehovah's Witness children grow up. It had been probably a decade since she and Dan had left the church. I think it was about six or seven years, I think. I don't know if it was a full decade or not. For us that are on the outside, that seems like plenty of time to adjust and to live a normal life. You were her friend. You also walked her path. What was this like, this transition time like for her? The best way I can describe it is like being dropped off in the middle of China and you have no map and you have no command of the language and someone's telling you okay go home and so there you are stuck in the middle of a rice paddy you don't know where you're at and you don't know how to get home you don't know even know what home is anymore it's a real dark place very very dark and i've been out over 30 years and you can hear me tearing up about it and lauren would do the same thing 
I know the initial response from the police department was this was not motivated by religion because she had left the church so many years prior. But when you read the suicide note, you know, this is not only connected to the Jehovah Witness religion, but also to her father. Lauren was pretty open about the fact that she says her dad sexually abused her. Yeah, she told me that very early on in our relationship. And I believe her. I totally believed her. As a social worker, I understand there's constellations of symptoms that people usually carry within themselves when they are an abuse victim, specifically a sexual abuse victim. Lack of trust, for one, is a big one. And she had all the markings. It was inability to trust anybody and inability to get close. And not just difficulty. I'm talking inability. It's like telling somebody to walk out of a wheelchair. It's not that they don't want to. They want to. Yeah. But they can't. That's the big thing. Because of what they've been through. And it takes a lot of therapy. And these constellations are very marked in people. I'm sure anybody who's been sexually abused is shaking their heads right now. They know what I'm talking about. In her suicide notes, one of the things she stated was, I killed my family because I knew my death would stumble them. At least now they will not suffer. What does that mean? There's a belief in the Jehovah's Witnesses that if you die before Armageddon, you'll be resurrected into paradise on earth when it becomes a paradise. There's a tradition in the Jehovah's Witnesses that when they have a funeral and somebody dies, you don't cry. The reason why is because why would you cry? That person's not going to have to go through Armageddon. And for sure, because they don't have to go through Armageddon, for sure will be you know, raised, resurrected into God's grace. Whereas if you chance living through Armageddon and you think you've done some bad things in your life and you think that, oh, I'll never make it to Armageddon, well, then it's better off that you die before Armageddon. After Armageddon or during Armageddon, you have no chance. You're dead. God killed you. That's it. You're wiped off. No longer. But if you die before Armageddon, well, then your sins are forgiven and because you died and you'll be resurrected and have a new chance. This is something Lauren was greatly afraid of, as evident in that letter. And she was worried that whatever she did or whatever she thought her children did, and she didn't want them to suffer, that they would not have to go through Armageddon and chance not making it to paradise. Who is responsible for this? I put it squarely on the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society organization of New York. I put it squarely on their on their shoulders because all the stuff that the religion spews out and demands of its followers comes right from there. Joyce, my deepest condolences on the horrible loss of your friends. Thank you, Annie. I want to bring into the conversation now. Kim Brooks, she is with the Watchtower Exposed website and YouTube channel. And Kim, we've spoke at length 
uh, throughout the course of this investigation. You are a warrior. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate the chance to speak out about this. Tell us more about Watchtower Exposed. What is the purpose? The purpose is my husband and I woke up back in 2012 to what the Jehovah Witness were doing, hiding the child abuse problem. And there was just so much. It was overwhelming. We have a side business and we shut that down for a year just to do research about Watchtower's history and their court cases and all of that. And we realized, oh my God, we're in a cult. We really weren't sure what we wanted to do, but we just started going on forums and talking to people. And we realized this wasn't an isolated case. Mike and I were disfellowshipped. The general public would consider that excommunicated just for not believing Watchtower doctrines anymore. We didn't even speak out to anybody. Mike just made one comment to his mom and she called her congregation elders and before we knew it we were disfellowshipped and excommunicated and they kicked our daughter and son-in-law out just because they're our kids then we just started learning about this abuse and it's like you know what we need to help those who are leaving not only jehovah's witnesses but all these other um, abusive organizations it's hasn't been an easy path for you guys though, has it? No, no, it's not because, you know, the organization, Jehovah's Witness, Watchtower organization, they always wanna label us as lying apostates, that we're just out to get them. We just wanna destroy them. And they tell the current members, like our friends and family, not to even talk to us. My mom has not talked to me for nine years. My daughter is their only granddaughter. They haven't talked to her for nine years and she did nothing. Policy is that you do not have any contact, not even a text to see how your family member is doing. What is that like to think your mom is out there? In your mind, is she still there or do you almost have to mourn a death for your family? That's exactly what you have to do. It is one of the worst psychological things you can do to a family member, to another human being. You've weaponized our families. That is a horrible psychological thing to go through. And even in the XJW community, we see so much mental health issues we see a tremendous amount of suicides. My own brother committed suicide back in 2003. I don't know why, because he didn't leave a note, but all I know is he was a gay man and you cannot be a gay man in the organization. So I can only assume that's why, but it, it's devastating. I saw that you wanted to be a message of freedom and hope. Yes. For us that aren't in the Jehovah Witness community, what does that mean? Is the religion fear-based? Yes, and you're exactly right. You know, we grow up, you know, oh, Armageddon's coming at any time. And sorry, I get a little emotional about this, but Armageddon is coming at any time and we have nightmares. And I know of 
some adults, even some elders who have left that are having nightmares. If you say anything against the organization or the governing body, you can be disfellowshipped and excommunicated, and nobody wants that because they see what happens to those of us who leave. You can't ask questions. You're afraid when you find out about an accusation of child abuse. It's all quiet, quiet. You'll get disfellowshipped. That's the goal of our channel and our website is we want to help people find their freedom to live their lives. Kim, before we say goodbye, can you tell us, um, again, what is your website? Our website is watchtower.exposed. Our YouTube channel is Kim Mikey, M-I-K-E-Y, and there's a space between our two names. You can even just put in Kim Mikey XJW and it will come up. And then usually people can contact us through our email, KimmyMBrooks at gmail.com. Continue the conversation with your hosts, Alicia and Ronnie, on any of your favorite social media platforms. Crimecasters, time to go off script and behind the scenes for a candid conversation about today's case. The two women are so brave because it takes a lot of courage. So much. You are going after and you're speaking out against a force so much more powerful than one voice. But sometimes that one voice can get the attention of so many people and they are so brave. They have been threatened. They've been shunned by their families. And of course, that's just a small part of the interview I had with the two of them. So we'll put the extended version up on our YouTube page, which is Crimecasters Network. I know a lot of people for years have been following these Scientology claims Mm -hmm. and the documentaries, and that got a lot of attention. The Catholic Church sex scandal has gotten so much attention. In fact, my priest from middle school is in prison right now for sex abuse. But this is starting to get more attention that Jehovah's Witness may be the next Catholic Church sex scandal. And you have done a lot of investigating on this. Now, this is the part of the show where we go off script and take you behind the scenes to ask the questions we have as we investigate our cases. Ronnie, you know I have so many questions. I had not read that text message before, but you do have so much of the police report. And in this case, you have the crime scene photos, which I've seen that broke my heart. You have so much and and it's crazy because you have the pieces of the puzzle. Now you just have to put it together like investigators had to. I do have to give a shout out to the Keiko Harbor Police Department. At the time, I was actually working for ATF. And I remember we were on a search warrant, maybe in Flint. It was an all day affair. Search warrants are long days for law enforcement. And the alert came across our phone before it was public. And they knew I lived in Keiko. And I was like, you can't be talking about Keiko Harbor. Not my Keiko Harbor. Um, So it's something that our community is still reeling from. And I know it has impacted the officers and the detectives that had to respond to the scene that day. I know Detective Barnes, who was the main detective on this case, actually did ask Lauren's father, did he indeed sexually abuse his daughter? He denied the allegations. He said he was aware that Lauren had made the allegations. So Detective Barnes offered for him to come in and do a polygraph because he said there's no victim. Right. 
So you're not going to be prosecuted if you fail a polygraph. Just come in because your name's going to be in the report. Let's clear your name. Yeah. He's still waiting for that polygraph. Wow. I mean, her claim of sexual abuse, she was outspoken, which so many, you know, victims of sexual abuse have a hard time coming forward, especially when it's a family member. It makes it more difficult. I mean, did she ever report this to authorities back then or did she maybe tell someone in the church? Her father is a church elder. It's unknown if they ever went to authorities, but she went to her mom. She went to her family members. And remember, this started when she was six, Mm, or so mm, she claims. mm. She was a child. But I can tell you as a matter of practice, you didn't talk about these things within the Jehovah Witness community. And isn't there some crazy rule about something with, like, within the church, if there's sexual abuse, you have to have people see it or something? Alicia, when I read this, I couldn't believe it. I've heard of this, though. I've heard of this. The Jehovah Witness have what is considered a two-witness rule, which requires the testimony of two Mm. material witnesses to establish a person's sin in the absence of a confession. That's wonderful. So when somebody wants to rape a child, they just have to, I mean, they can do it in front of one person. That's okay. But if there's two people, they're in trouble. So, I mean, come on. I, I, come on. If anyone's listening to this, please challenge your church on this. Please. Come on. We're not bashing on the Jehovah Witness community. I'm bashing that rule. That has been uh, such a, a sticking point. But if you make the allegations, you have to go before a committee of three elders, which... Her dad was an elder. It's men, by the way, three men. And they get to grill you on these questions. Talk about awkward, right? No, no one's going to do that. And they know that nobody is going to do that. And so they can cover it up and pretend, hide their faces in the sand and just pretend like it's not happening because they're not hearing about it. So they can't claim that they're hearing about it. But that's because nobody in their right minds is going to come forward and go through that. They are starting to, even though the Jehovah Witness community operates under a veil of secrecy, the walls, Alicia, are starting to crumble because more and more allegations are starting to emerge, alleging cover-ups at the highest levels. The most damning report came out of Australia. It was by the Royal Commission, which was established by the government in 2013 to investigate how institutions such as Schools, churches, and even the government handle complaints of child sexual abuse. It's known as Case Study 29. The Royal Commission found over a thousand members were accused of sexually abusing kids, and the victims were ordered to keep quiet. No. Not one of the abusers was ever reported to police. Isn't that against the law? I mean, don't they have to disclose that? Here in the United States, yes, for the most part. But there's a loophole, which I didn't know until I started looking into this case. It's basically if I am a member of the congregation and I go to a member of my clergy for guidance, then the member of the clergy does not have to report that. So some states are now working to close that loophole. So I can be... So a child can come to you 
as a elder of the church, as somebody who is supposed to lead by example, mm-hmm. they can come to you, confess to you that somebody is touching them inappropriately or raping them. And they can just say, you know what? It's like attorney client privilege or something. This has been an issue with the <sighs> Catholic church right. as well, but it could be myself. I could go and confess my sins but I'm seeking spiritual guidance. But I think it's different because if you go and confess your sins, yes, if they told on you, you could be arrested for breaking the law and that puts you in jeopardy. But if you are a victim and you are saying somebody attacked me, that is a whole different ballgame in my mind. Violating the Abused and Neglected Child Reporting Act as a misdemeanor punishment is often nothing more than a slap on the wrist. Last month, Two Jehovah Witness elders were sentenced to one year of court supervision in the state of Illinois, 10 hours of community service, and $250 in fines for failing to report a member of its congregation being abused. I am going home and starting to make picket signs tonight, and I'm going to, uh, I mean, I, I just am disgusted. I'm disgusted that this is 2022. Mm-hmm. Can we please protect the children? We now know what happens. And when children come forward, we know to take them seriously. When women come forward and say they were sexually abused, we know to take it seriously. This is an embarrassment. You would think after what has come to light with so many other religious organizations, mainly the Catholic Church, this would be an issue that we're not talking about any longer. But it is. I want to talk about suicide because in a lot of these instances, we see high rates of suicide. I mean, we want to know why did this beautiful model kill her family and her dog? But there's a lot of suicide around the church. I know for Detective Barnes, he was saying that in her suicide note, Lauren Stewart did not put this on the backs of the church. However, when you go to the basis of her complaint, It started with the allegations of sexual abuse from her father. Then you add that depression of being shunned from her faith and her church community and their family members. Her dad said that he hadn't talked to her in years. Her sister said once she found out about it, no, she wasn't surprised. Unbelievable. Didn't her, didn't her, wasn't there suicide in her family? Yeah. Her uh, brother committed suicide, I believe back in 1997. You can't put a number on it though, because no one's tracking it. However, some experts do estimate suicide is five to 10 times higher for members of the Jehovah Witness community than the general public. One of the findings coming out of the Royal Commission report in Australia was trying to change that two-witness rule, but also the shunning of family members that either decide to leave the church or are kicked out of the church. I mean, you've been living in a bubble. It is a bubble. Then you're just left on your own. Now, social media is making it easier for people to connect and to get help. But it's hard to say if Lauren Stewart did what she did because she was shunned from the church or if it was because of the sexual abuse or maybe she suffered depression on its own. But you put all of that together and it's a storm. It's just heartbreaking. 
family members say the days and the weeks ahead of Lauren doing what she did, they did notice a change, but no one knew how to reach her. There was one survivor. The pet hamster. This is the one, like, little warm spot of this whole story because it just goes to show you how these cases impact detectives. Bethany had a pet hamster, Mm. and the detective took the hamster home. I know so many people want to put this on the backs of the church. I think it was just the storm of so many things and so many moments coming together. I did get a late response from the Jehovah Witness Church. It's long, so I'll put the entire letter up on our website. But regarding the due witness policy, it states, Jehovah's Witnesses do not have a due witness policy. However, the Bible only authorizes elders to handle matters of serious sin where there is a confession or two witnesses to the wrongdoing. On the issue of reporting child abuse, it states, when elders learn of an accusation, they immediately consult with the branch office of Jehovah's Witnesses to ensure compliance with child abuse reporting laws. And when it comes to shunning, the letter says, States, those who were baptized as Jehovah's Witnesses but no longer preach to others are not shunned. In fact, they reach out to them and try to rekindle their spiritual interest. And they do not automatically disfellowship someone who commits a serious sin. If, however, a baptized witness makes a practice of breaking the Bible's moral code and does not repent, he or she will be disfellowship. This is definitely a call for justice. More people are coming out and we applaud you and we will support you. Next, our true crime genius weighs in on this case with this week's sidebar. It's time to get schooled by the teen sensation of true crime. Here's our resident boy genius with this week's sidebar. Hi, my name is Ryan Custer and I'm an 18-year-old pre-law junior at the University of Texas at Dallas. Ever since I was nine years old, I've been researching cases, attending trials, and pouring over hundreds of thousands of pages of court documents, all in the name of true crime. Apologies in advance if my voice is a little scratchy. I think that finals are finally getting the best of me. On today's episode of Sidebar, we're going to dive into the complex topics of the First Amendment, religious freedom, and the concept of shunning. I want to preface this sidebar by saying that it's purely observational as to different legal topics and how they associate with religion. It's obviously a hot button issue for many of us in America, and I think that it's important that we have this conversation without taking any particular sides or taking a particular perspective. It's purely an analysis. Obviously, everybody knows that the First Amendment guarantees freedom of speech and the freedom of religion. We do not typically think of religion and lawsuits going together. Save for major cases of fraud, corruption, etc., religious freedom and the peaceful practice of religion is an important pillar in American society. However, when we examine certain religions, legal questions have been raised as to whether particular practices by those religions violate civil law when certain aspects of them are enforced. Most commonly, and relevant to this case, is the concept of shunning. When you're shunned in a community such as the Church of the Latter-day Saints, or in this case, Jehovah's Witnesses, it is devastating, particularly in areas saturated with that faith, such as Salt Lake City or Maricopa County, Arizona. Basically, the entire community is encouraged to completely ignore your existence. Several people have attempted to bring damages for the after effects of a shunning, but in most cases they're unsuccessful as churches are able to argue that it's a part of their religion and therefore they're free to practice that. 
In fact, the Supreme Court has ruled that religious practices, even if they could violate a state law, are protected unless the state can show a, quote, compelling interest. Time and time and again, courts have ruled that in situations where people are suing a church due to some form of emotional or financial damage sustained via a shunning, the church is generally protected. I know this topic is broad, but I think it's interesting nonetheless to consider. When someone involuntarily leaves a community, such as being excommunicated from a church, to what extent is religious freedom a basis for that church intentionally impacting their life in a negative way? I don't have a particular opinion, but I think it's nonetheless a question for all of us to ponder, especially when you look at it in the context of this case. I've got to get back to my group project, but I will see you guys next week. Before we say goodbye, let's take a moment to remember the Stewart family. And to those who are struggling right now, please know help is out there. Reach out. Yeah, let's end with uh, the Suicide Prevention Helpline. The number is 1-800-273-8255. Please call if you need help. Can't get enough of this case? The conversation continues online at crimecastersnetwork.com.